0: Okay, well, good morning again. Welcome. Uh, For those of you who do not know me, my name is Steve. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're continuing um, a brand new teaching series that we've been doing for the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. Um, Really just thinking about what it means. Uh, for us to be people who are fully alive Uh, and so I think we've got two more after this so some of you are like breathing a sigh of relief because he's going to stop challenging me every week he's going to stop giving me homework to do uh, and all those sorts of things and so uh, we are heading on the home straight as it were and so um, we've been we've been looking at this phrase every week sorry this is really loose uh, we've been looking at this phrase every week uh, from Saint Irenaeus, who was a French church father uh, in AD 200. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. And, and what we've been thinking about is, is, is that somehow um, God's glory and our aliveness are intertwined, that, that God is committed to us becoming fully alive in him. Um, but as we've been saying each week, life in its fullness doesn't mean life that is um, pain-free or struggle-free or, or doesn't have, we don't experience suffering. Uh, it, it means that we learn to do life in the midst of those things. That doing life well and, and doing life fully alive is, is about learning to do life in, in the blessings and the battles. Uh, and, and, and actually, the blessings and the battles come like on two tracks, if you like. And so there's the, the track of blessing uh, and, and the track of battle. And we can experience both uh, at, at the same time. It's kind of life can be a little bit schizophrenic, kind of. It can be a little bit like, oh my goodness, there's these great things going on over here. Yet at the same time, um, these, these other things are happening. Was it Charles Dickens who said it's the best of times? and the worst of times. And that's kind of what life is like, isn't it? And so we're trying to figure out how do we do life well um, when all of that is going on? How do we do life well together? And, um, and so the framework that we've, we've been using for that as we've, we've sought to think about our physical and our spiritual and our emotional health is, is this idea that a disciple of Jesus, someone who follows him, is someone who learns to live their life in... In three dimensions that we 're called to live in an upward dimension that 's about our connection connection to God uh, that we 're called to live in an inward direction uh, that 's all about who we 're becoming it 's about our character in the context of a community like this one, and then we 're also called to live in an outward dimension uh, that 's about the mission that God has given us that we 're to be people. Who who take his kingdom to the places that we inhabit, uh, that we're to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we began by saying that we become fully alive by changing the way we think. You know, you you might remember we looked at Romans 12, where he says, Don't conform to the patterns of the world, but actually think differently, Uh, think in new ways. And, and, and so disciples of Jesus are people who think correctly about who they are and about who God is. And then, and then after that, we talked about living life with an absence of hurry. How's that, how's that going for anyone? Has anybody had an opportunity just to put some new rhythms in their life where life isn't just all about hurry? Any Anyone? One of you. Uh, that's great. How's it going for the rest of you? Um, <laughs> Um, but we were deadly serious, weren't we, that, you know, this, this idea, we can't just live at a million miles an hour and expect to thrive, that we need to be people who ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. And then last week, I made this kind of audacious claim. I said that the, the building block, the foundation for church life, uh, the health of our church will only ever be as healthy as the families that make up uh, this church. And that actually, we are called to be people who invest in our family relationships, whether it's our marriages or our kids or whatever it might be, Uh, that we're called to have healthy families, that we're we're called to put in certain things in place that produce health uh, in our family environment. This week, I want to talk uh, about another facet of that inward, that inward dimension, and I'll talk about family again, but actually talk about church family. Uh, and I want to make a fairly strong assertion from the beginning, so I'm just going to upset you straight away. Um, uh, and, and that is, is that to be family, um, to be church family, requires a risk of commitment. It's a dirty word, isn't it? Commitment. Yeah. Um, I think it's true to say we live in a commitment-phobic kind of age, um, particularly in the area of relationships. Uh, one one person wrote, and I quote, with the emergence of apps such as Tinder and reality TV shows making the century-old practice of courtship taboo, our society is encouraged to engage in one-night stands and the pursuit of no-strings-attached, emotionless relationships. And that's true, isn't it? That we, we, we approach relationships. Our culture calls us to approach relationships with very little commitment. And whilst some of us might be happy to do that, some of us might be happy to think, I just want to go through life with zero commitment. I'm just going to, life's going to just come at me as it is, and I'm just going to respond to it on the spot. But the problem is, is that we're not designed that way. We're not designed, we're designed to live, we're not designed to live unattached relationships. In fact, that can't happen, can it? It can't be a relationship if it's unattached. And you see, the God we follow is actually a relational God. That we believe community and relationship itself is found in Him. That there's this mutually submissive kind of relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The technical world, the technical word is perichoresis, which means there's like this divine dance that takes place between between the Trinity, between the. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that there's this communion that that takes place. And so God himself is in a perpetual relationship. And so us as his people who are made in his image are also therefore called to be in relationship, that we're relational beings. And the truth is, is that the gospel is not so much You know, God um, saving individuals, but it's more about God establishing a community of people. And actually, that's a community that requires something of us. Stanley Grenz, who's a theologian, he says this. He says, "Uh, The fellowship of Jesus' followers is not merely a loose coalition of individuals who acknowledge Jesus. Rather, it's a community of disciples who seek to walk together in accordance with the principles of the kingdom. As Christ's church, we desire to live out in in the present the final reality that will come at the end of history, namely a reconciled community. He goes on and he says this, The Spirit directs his great creative work towards establishing this eschatological community. A people who are bound together by their mutual obedience to God, revealed in Jesus. It is their commitment to living as Jesus' disciples which characterizes the community they form. You see, everything that we do, everything about us, is moving towards something. It's, it's moving towards the establishment of his kingdom, his community on earth. Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, How then will the story of human history end? We do not see the illusion of a world that melts away, nor do we see spiritual souls escaping the physical world into heaven. Rather, we see heaven descending into our world to unite with it and purify it, purify all the brokenness and imperfections. You see, at the heart of the gospel... At the heart of what Jesus has done is is a redemption and reconciliation of community. That that we're both reconciled and redeemed to God, but we're also reconciled to one another. And so as we look at God's, God's story, as we look at this narrative that's being lived out, we see he's committed to follow through on that. He's committed to, to seeing this community of his people uh, established. Yet at the same time, it requires something of us. It asks something of us. And that's where that C word comes in. Commitment. It is a, it is a dirty word. So, And so what I, what I want to kind of think about today... Uh, is, is that the, the sense of risk to, uh, to commit and the sense of risk, risk to commit towards community um, is, is important because we believe that that's what God is building. You see, to be fully alive, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks, requires a number of things of us. And one of the things it requires is a commitment to the community, to the, to the people that God is building. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Ephesians 4. I'm just going to look at the first eight verses. And we're probably only going to look at the first three, actually. But I'm going to read it in context as much as I can. So Ephesians 4. It says this, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportions it. This is why it says, when he ascends on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. So the truth is, is that we often fear commitment. I don't know if you've, you've noticed that. Lots of us are afraid of making commitments because we, we think to ourselves, what if it goes wrong? What, what if I commit myself and it goes completely wrong? What if I commit to that job and I end up hating it? What if I commit to that degree and it's just not for me? You know, what, what if I commit to that person who I plan to marry and after a couple of years I get bored? What if I commit to that church but then the pastor says something that I don't agree with? And I'm sure, sure we do that quite a lot. But, um, and often our sense uh, of commitment towards community, towards relationship, is actually shaped by fear. Fear of what might happen. You know, if I give myself to this too much, then I'm probably going to be let down. And you see, at the heart of fear is a sense of vulnerability. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. (coughs) Love anything and your heart will be wronged and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must not give it to no one, not even an animal. I mean, no, that's true. We, 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 um, we took a puppy this year, and, um, and um, you know, as much as I hate him if he died, as much as I hate him when he eats my shoes, um, you know, we get attached, don't we? We get attached to animals, and then they die, <laughs> um, but what C.S. Lewis is saying here is, is often we don't want our hearts to ever be broken. And so we never put our play, <laughs> put ourselves in a place where we can be vulnerable. But the, 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 the flip side of that is, is that if, um, if we insist on playing it safe, we also never have close relationships. So if, we, if our if our heart is, and our mindset is to avoid vulnerability, then me, that means we avoid people and we never enter into the relationships we were made for. And there's something unique about what we believe as, as followers of Jesus. And that we believe in a God who made himself vulnerable. And he made himself vulnerable to be in relationship with us. See, God doesn't just love us in some abstract kind of way. You know, he doesn't just uh, remain in heaven, untouched, unmoved, unhurt by rejection. But actually, God becomes a little baby, doesn't he? And you don't get much vulnerable, more vulnerable than a, than a baby. And God allows himself to be hurt. He allows himself to be betrayed. He allows himself to be misunderstood. He allows himself to be rejected. See, God becomes someone who can be beaten. Someone who can be tortured and spat on and killed. Why did God do that? Why did he make himself so vulnerable? He did it to win us back, didn't he? he? He did it to win us back into relationship with himself. And see, if we accept what God has, that God has made himself vulnerable and, we, we, and that he allowed himself to be hurt, he allowed himself to feel pain of relationships, if we take that message to our heart we're also able to risk the commitment with someone else. We're also able to risk that vulnerability. If we know at the core of our being that we're loved, that God is for us, that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, he's never going to betray us, when our hearts are secure in God's love, it's then we can find we can be vulnerable to others, isn't it? Because even if people let us down, which that's the one guarantee I can give you. People will let you down. But when we're sure of what, who we are, when we're sure of how much God loves us, it doesn't actually matter. People will let us down. People will hurt us. But we still have a God He totally loves us. He's totally for us. And so as we think about doing life well, doing life together, we have to free ourselves from a fear of commitment because we fear vulnerability. We fear being vulnerable, being real before one another. And so I just want to think about three ways that we might consider doing that, three ways that we might consider overcoming some of the fears of making a commitment, making a stand. And so the first one would be to have the right goals. See, one of the great challenges of doing life well, being fully alive, is choosing the right goals. You know, we've all been around people who choose the wrong goals uh, maybe you've chosen the wrong goals uh, at different stages uh, in life uh, maybe you've know, maybe you've gone for a goal of maybe popularity or or wanting to be liked and you see if a goal like that drives us and it drives our, it drives our decision making it actually has the power to ruin relationships. I don't know if you've noticed that with people who always want to be liked, always want to be everybody's friend, and always want people to love them and and, and, and think highly of them. You know, if you take that kind of mentality to, I don't know, your parenting relationship, the problem is is that every time you come to discipline your kids, you're not going to do it because you want them to like you. And actually, what, what we do is we exchange the feelings that we have now for, for the benefits of the future. Or, or, or maybe we like to be liked at work. And so instead of managing that team uh, in our office, we, we just let things go because we want the team to like us. And no one is ever accountable for anything. Or maybe we want to be well-liked in the classroom and so the, the kids that we teach, we, yeah, we'll just let that go. We won't worry about that because we want them to like us. You see, if our goal is always to be liked, we'll always miss the opportunity for deeper relationship. Maybe your goal is something else. Maybe your goal would be, wouldn't be to be liked but would be to pursue wealth. And actually, you will sacrifice everything uh, for that. Sacrifice family, marriage, children on the altar of becoming wealthy. Now, wealth in and of itself isn't a bad thing. And actually, we need wealthy people. We're in the middle of a building project. And... um, But when we make that our pursuit, when we make that... um, the thing that we're going after, uh, the, 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 the target of our lives, actually it becomes dangerous territory. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He says, the foolish store up treasure instead of being rich towards God. And he says, don't store up treasure on earth, but store your treasure in heaven. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. See, Paul invites us to live a life worthy of our calling. That if we're going to make a commitment to community, if we're going to commit ourselves to be relationally connected, to be the family of God, we need to commit to the right goals what's the goal what's the goal of church why why do we do this why why do we gather in places like this and is it to have a nice comfortable experience is it to sing some great songs is it to hear some okay teaching is it to sit in a nice warm building Is it to be around people that are like us, where we're never stretched, never confronted, never made to feel uncomfortable? You see, if that's our goal, if our goal is just to be comfortable here, then I want to say with all love, Central Vineyard isn't the place for you. That isn't what we're about. We're not here for our comfort. What's the goal of the church? What are we called to be as the church? Well, when Paul speaks of living life worthy of our calling, he's building upon something he's already said. You see, the church is actually God's main instrument in working out his plan of pulling all things together under Christ to heal divisions, to reconcile all relationships. In Ephesians 2 and verse 13, it says this. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the division, the the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations he pursued his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two thus making peace a guy called rich nathan who leads uh, the columbus vineyard he says this when when jesus was hung spread-eagled on the cross with one arm he reached out and brought to himself the jews and with the other army, reached out and brought to himself the Gentiles. And out of the raw material of Jew and Gentile, God creates a new race of people. The church is not defined by our ancestry, um, uh, what country we come from, or the color of our skin. The church is an entirely new race, a new humanity, a unified people under this one head, Jesus Christ Christ. You see, God's goal has always been to heal division. Heal, heal the divisions of the world. And don't we want that? If, if never before, when you look at what's going on in the world around us now, we long for it, don't we? And he's working out that goal of healing division through his church, his, his new people. Whether you're nationally born or you're an immigrant, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're male, whether you're female, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether your passport says British or whether it says European, the local church is where the rubber hits the road. It's where divisions between us and God and divisions between us and others are restored. And so the goal has to be right. We have to have the right goal. Not only do we have to have the right goal, but we also have to have the right attitude. Ephesians 4.2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. See, if we're going to pull people together, if we're going to heal divisions, if we're going to reconcile relationships with one another... Not only do we need to have the right goals, but we need to have the right attitudes. The right attitudes that produce reconciliation. He says, be completely humble. But the reality is, that isn't the case, is it? Most of us um, struggle with that because we struggle with pride. Pride. That's the opposite to humility, isn't it? Pride. And so we, say, so we say things like, I'll say sorry when they say sorry. Or I'll move towards them if they move towards me. I'll acknowledge my wrong after they've acknowledged their wrong. That's kind of how we operate, isn't it? But actually that attitude, I don't know if you've noticed, it doesn't get you very far, particularly if you're married, um, Can I have an amen? No. Um, But if God's desire is to reconcile everything to himself, to draw us into his kind of communal nature, then we need to be the humble party, don't we? We need to be the ones who are gentle, who are patient. We need to be the ones who bear with one another. We need to be the ones who... Love one another regardless. How many of us have ever been guilty of a bad attitude? Wow, so many holy people in this place. Um, my guess is that we've all had bad attitudes. You know, we're not going to take a picture, okay? You can participate and say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, but we, we've all had bad attitudes, aren't they? And one one particular bad attitude that I observe in myself and in the church, um, and I I think something that stops us from fully entering into community, fully entering into relationships, is the attitude of cynicism. I don't know if you've noticed that cynicism is is just like a a rampant thing uh, in in our culture. And... um, and actually, when when we um, we we'll, we'll try and put spin on cynicism, won't we? We'll try and we'll try and um, pretend that it's a gift of reflection. Um, so that's what, how we'll put positive spin on, on cynicism. Yet, um, over and over again, criticism and cynicism has has a nature of being quite toxic. It can destroy uh, relationships. And. Um, and you know, we we could say, you know, there's nothing wrong um, with pointing stuff out, and 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 absolutely, um, things do need pointing out, and and we could say that you know, it's important to speak the truth, and yeah, I I totally I totally agree. But actually, our our ability sometimes to evaluate and to uh, critique people is often really unhelpful. I don't know if you've you've been the receiver of that, or maybe you've even heard the words come from your mouth. Um, I, I certainly have. And so how do we fight that attitude of cynicism? How do we begin to address that in ourselves? Because we're all guilty of it, aren't we? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, now I'm being cynical. Um How do we do that? How do we begin to address cynicism? Well, I think we need. What first thing we need to do is remember that the church is Jesus's bride. The church is Jesus's bride. You know, the church is also made up of broken people. Um, I don't know if you realise that. If you didn't, just look at the person next to you. Um, And Jesus died for those broken people. That the the church. Is, is the bride that he adores. And so I, I imagine how we talk about his bride matters to him. You know, I, I know my wife's faults and failings. And if she would let me tell you, I could. Okay? But if one of you comes and tells me my wife's faults and failings... We're going to have a fight. <laughs> it's going to mean business. Because you don't speak like that about my wife. And could it be that Jesus feels the same way when we're cynical about his bride? When we talk down about this, this wonderful thing that he treasures? <laughs> so remember who the church is. The other bit would be to focus on what is good. In, the, in, in four chapters of Philippians, uh, 15 times, Paul instructs us to rejoice. See, I, I don't know if you've realized this, identifying problems is actually quite easy. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, I, I love those emails, by the way. Bring them on. Um, but actually focusing on what's good takes effort. Focusing on, on what's working well is intentional. We have to be intentional about that. And so if we're going to invest relationally in one another, if we're going to be people who are committed to one another in relationship, then we need to learn to focus on what is good. See, if God has chosen to no longer look at our sin we can choose to f- stop focusing on those things as well. And actually, we can become preoccupied with loving people instead. So focus on the good. And then the last last thing I would say to beat cynicism is to pray first and talk later. That, that there's going to be times where we need to have thoughtful, loving, critical responses to things. And that's an appropriate thing to do. But before we do that, I think the scriptures are really clear that we have to examine ourselves, don't we? We have to look internally first. We have to look internally and consider the benefits of what we're going to be saying. Proverbs 15 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sometimes even the right things can be said in the wrong way at the wrong time. And so sometimes we need to pause. Sometimes we need to consider before we speak. And so we need the right goals. We need the right attitude. And we also need the right commitment. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, spare no expense. Give everything you've got to build your life in community and connection to other people. Which is hard, isn't it, when it's fashionable to kind of talk down church. It's, it's, it's fashionable to sort of say, I don't really need people. I don't really need anyone else. I don't need more relationships. I don't need the church. But here's the thing. There's a a law in nature that universally governs everything. It governs nature, it governs finances, and it also governs relationships. And that law is you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. People who invest deeply in community, people who in de- invest deeply in relationships, who sow into those relationships, who, who show up and serve and, and contribute to relationships, they reap something back in return. You see, we get out of church what we put in it. We get out of this thing we call the church community what we're willing to invest, what we're willing to give of ourselves. You know that's why we make such a big deal about connect groups, uh, because connect groups are the place where people get to invest in life together. Now we can't guarantee relationship in that, we can't guarantee community, but all we can do is create the the environments for those things to take place and you see a connect group is more than just a weekly meeting it's more than just showing up for a couple of hours in someone's living room eating Jaffa cakes it's more than that isn't it actually it's a a connect group comes into its own when there's a crisis when when something happens to one of its members and they all rally round and make a difference So when we choose to invest ourselves, when we choose to commit ourselves to community in a small group, it's more than just an activity. It's more than just showing up. It's actually committing ourselves to one another, and something flows out of that. And so again, I'm going to keep laboring this. If you haven't joined, if you haven't signed up, sign up to a group. Because it's part of the redemptive nature of what God is doing. That God is restoring relationships. He's restoring humanity. And one of the ways we outlive that is by learning to do life together in small clusters of groups. And so I'd encourage you, whether you've been in the church for one week, two weeks, or five years, ten years, you need to be in community. You need to be connected to others. And if there's no space, we'll start some more groups. Maybe you can start another group. Um, but, you know, we, we need to be people who are connected to one another. And so we want to con- consider the right goals. And we, we do that by remembering... The church isn't just for our entertainment. The church is called to break down the walls of division that exist between humanity, to reconcile men and women back to God and to reconcile us back to one another. It means we need to consider the right attitudes. We need to choose to love and prefer each other. It means we need to refuse to engage in the cynical things that the world teaches us. But instead, we need to learn to honor one another. We need to learn to honor one another in the image of Christ, that each one of us are being made new, we're being transformed. And and our task is to draw that out of each other, not talk one another down, not beat each other up, but actually speak words of life And it means we need to consider the right commitments, and that right commitment requires effort. It requires us applying ourselves to something, and so it's more. You know, I I just said sign up to a group, but actually, you know, you can sign up to a group and never show up, and and that happens because we have stats that tell us that. (laughs) Um, And so it's one thing to sign up, tick but then the action is you've got to show up. You've got to turn up. And I know what it's like. It's Thursday evening. You've had a tough week at work. It's cold outside. All you want to do is open a bottle of wine and sit in your own living room. But I can't do that because I've got 15 people coming around. <laughs> I know what it's like. But actually, we can't afford not to be connected to others. And so we need to give ourselves to one another. We need to up the up our game in terms of investing uh, in, in 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 each other, because what we invest is what we will receive. And so, our challenge this week—you know—we've we've kind of had homework every week. Our challenge this week is is to find a way to get into community. And um, the obvious way, if this is your church home, is to join a group, to show up at a group, uh, to get connected to a group. We've got, we've got about 12 or 14 groups starting this term, so there's, there's enough groups to, to kind of start with. Um, but that's the challenge. I want you to consider again, what does it mean to step into group life? What does it mean to step in and be in communal life with one another? You know, we've got a, a variety of groups. We have groups that we call community groups that might look like um, just regular small groups that you've experienced before. Uh, we've got groups that are based around activity uh, and passions that people have. And so you might think, you know, I'm really passionate about prayer. Well, we've got a group that meets to pray. Um, you might think I'm really passionate about justice and compassion. Well, we've got a group that's meeting here every Thursday to explore issues of compassion and justice and then go and put it into practice. So there's loads of different options that you can get connected to. And I just encourage you, sign up. What have you got to lose? You know, the commitment is 12 weeks. If it sucks, you can join another one in 12 weeks' time. And so that's, that's the challenge for this week.